Welcome back, team. Gather round. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, where we try to put the formation back in Reformation, giving light and shade and texture and application and pushing the reign of Christ into uh, into all the corners. We're a podcast of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, as I mentioned. We're also on the Rebel Alliance Media Network, and that's a platform uh, that uh, that hosts several other fine podcasts and uh, video series and other resources. Uh, they're good friends of ours. We are pleased to be standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, with Nate, and Chris, uh, Grant, and Erica, Ben, and the rest of the crew down at. Uh, down at Rebel Alliance Media. I encourage you to go and uh, check out the resources that they've got as well. So today, my guest is a, uh, a good new friend. Her name is Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, she goes by SJ, is a scholar of literature, a teacher of English literature at a, uh, a public boys' school in the UK. Uh, she was with us for the Worldview Leadership Camp, uh, ministering to the young people here. And I got a chance to sit down with her. We talked about education, Christian education, uh, the notion of a Christian paideia, and what that means for parents, for school teachers, uh, for anyone who's interested in the, the education, the training up, the, uh, the raising up of godly Christian uh, young people and students in particular. We talk about why we study literature, why it's important for Christians to study literature, and what Shakespeare can tell us about uh, a Christian worldview. Sarah Jane Bentley, thanks for being here with us um, on this uh, on this program. Thanks for being here at the uh, the Worldview Leadership Camp, all the way from the UK. Mm. Um, and your uh, your regular job um, back home is uh, you're a, a teacher of lit to. Uh, a uh, a public uh, a pub a British public school um, a boys school is that right? That's right. Yeah, I teach teenagers who are thirteen to eighteen years old, mm-hmm. um, and I've been teaching now for about ten years. So I've taught all over the world. I've taught in Croatia, I've taught in East Africa, Nairobi, and um, and now I've come back and I sort of teach to the west of London. It's quite a spread. Yeah, <laughs> quite a range of. Uh, teaching experience exactly yes so was it always in literature yeah but it's only now I feel sort of with 10 years under my belt that I'm Mm -hmm. starting to figure it out a little bit yeah (laughs) good well I'm uh, grateful for your experience and I'd love to hear some of uh, what you've uh, what you've started to figure out Uh, and we were uh, we were going to talk when when we uh, sat down to set this interview you had mentioned that uh, you wanted to talk about a Christian paideia um, and maybe the, the place to start is just to, uh, that's not a word that we use every day, is paideia. Yeah. Um, maybe you could unpack that for us a bit. Yeah, it's a Greek word that means education. Um, and it also means, along with that, it means bringing up children. Okay. So it's, it's quite a full picture of education. It doesn't okay. just mean kind of head knowledge. It means the whole Not just child. a classroom. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that headmasters and and teachers should think carefully how to establish a firm Christian paideia in their schools. And um, I'm always being told the Bible's not a handbook, and I know that, but um, sometimes it is. (laughs) And I think that 
that Philippians 4 is a great place to go, um, perhaps if you're starting up a Christian school or if you, you have one going at the moment and you want to kind of re recheck your, your foundations. Um, yeah. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Mm -hmm. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, I think that's a, a great foundation for mm -hmm. a Christian curriculum because we start with joy, then we're given um, the advice not to be anxious, not to be careful. Um, we're told to be grateful. And then we have this great list of things that we should pursue with our children. Truth, honesty, justice, purity, loneliness, loveliness, <laughs> goodness, virtue and praise. Um, and then after that, we're told don't just um, kind of contemplate these things, but actually do them. Um, and we move in that passage from peace to peace. And I think that, you know, when we're teaching children, we should move from from a state of rest to work and then back to a state of rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it, it's interesting to me, um, a couple of things in that passage that, um, like you, you said, uh, the uh, the begin beginning with the, the reminder to rejoice. Yes. Um, but um, probably more, more so is the the exhortation towards the end to do what you have learned from me, to do as you have seen me do and to imitate the, the character of the apostle. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I think joy is a really good place that parents can, and teachers can start. How, mm -hmm. how do we cultivate mm -hmm. joy yes. in, in our education? Um, and I think that teaching literature as a means of discovering truth um, and as a, as a kind of quest that you're going to go on that, that will definitely be victorious is a really joyful way of um, teaching literature. Because um, as teachers, we can sometimes make mistakes like thinking that, that truth is, is somewhere out there as this kind of abstract concept and that you have to ascend this dialectical staircase to get to it. Um, not that truth is, you, not that you can't discover truth. Yes, that I think sometimes we can make the mistake um, that, that truth is only accessible to a kind of higher intellect yes. after some yeah. great struggle. Yeah. Um, or, or that we can see, um, you know, argument as a way of teaching where you put forward two different arguments and they contend and one of them is going to win over the other one and that the one that wins will be true. And that, that creates a real sense of, I think, anxiety and battle. In, mm. in your lessons mm -hmm. and encourages mm -hmm. opposition when in fact you don't have two equal forces contending for dominance you know the light the truth is stronger 
and will always dispel the darkness. And so teaching is, is really just about shining a light. That's all you have to do. Um, and education should be um, a way of showing children the truth and, and showing them that it is possible to know the truth. Um, so uh, they do already know it is the other amazing thing. That's right. It's yeah, that's a really hearts. good point. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of the victorious element of it is that this isn't a battle and you're not going to fail. Mm -hmm. um, so teaching literature like that can be and is really inspiring, I've discovered. Um, I was thinking about the story of Gideon the other day Okay. in Judges, that he, he has to go and pull down the altar yeah. to the prophets of Baal that's in his dad's backyard. Yeah. But first of all, he builds the altar of peace. Um, and, and that's where we have to start from, I think. Mm. That there can be a bit of combative work that we have to do to, to clear away futile thoughts and delusions that children might have. But the great thing about teaching young children is that they, they haven't been into the academy yet. So they, right. don't, they haven't encountered dialectical materialism. They haven't encountered Marxist critical theory of literature. Um, so you're not, you're not having to contend with that yet. Um, and so there's no need to teach it. Um, but if you want to, I think there's this really good podcast that Andrew Sandlin's just done. That's, critical theories. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely going to listen to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, he's, uh, he's, he's good at that. Yeah. And also Joe's article on recovering a Christian mind, I think, is yes. a really good one to read. But yeah, I mean, we're going to make mistakes as teachers, but I think those are principles to kind of keep in mind and to, to give us hope. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So what... Um, you said uh, when you're when you're teaching, it's it's the process of of shining the light. Um, what uh, what's the what's the goal, I guess, of uh, of education of a, of a Christian paideia? Like fat look forward, you teach thirteen to eighteen year olds. Yeah. As an eighteen year old finishes his exams and walks off, what's your desire for that student? Well, one what does thing, he look like? Yeah, I think that's that's quite a, a big picture. Okay. One of the things that I, like a foundational thing I try to do is to teach them not to be anxious. Right. Um, I think anxiety is, is a, a huge affliction for our young people. Yes. And that that is partly the fault of the education system, that we, we put them in schools and, and they become stressed because of the way that the school is designed and because of the way that we teach. So as Christian teachers, we, we have to model... Um, we have to model a contentedness. We mm. can't approach our mm -hmm. teaching from a state of anxiety. Right. And as the passage tells us, it's be careful for nothing or be anxious for nothing is another translation. So there, there are kind of two things in there that we can't be obsessed with safety first and we mustn't be anxious. Um, and a lot of anxiety is to do with impatience, I think. So um, looking at the finished product of an 18-year-old, mm -hmm. uh, that can be jumping too far ahead. You, okay. just, you just have to deal with them one day at a time mm. and, and get them to wake up that day and deal with that day and not be anxious about the next one. Right. So um, I think some of the things that are built into the, the designed school systems that make children anxious are the battle of ideas that we just discussed. 
but also the competition for results, that there's a sense that education isn't just for the sake of joy or mm -hmm. rest, mm -hmm. but that it's in order to get results and to get something out of a, a literature book. You know, you need a, a mark on an exam paper. And so the more we can deprioritize those things, and if possible, remove them altogether, then the more successful the teaching will be and, and the greater their enjoyment of literature. Um, I was wondering if you'd ever seen the film The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie or read the book. No, I'm not familiar with that. Maggie Smith won an Oscar okay. for that in the 60s. And she plays this school teacher who's this kind of a rogue in a very um, strict Roman Catholic school. Okay. And um, she says, um, all my pupils are the creme de la creme. Give me a girl at an impressionable age and she is mine for life. And then she goes on and there's a scene in her schoolroom where she unveils a picture of Stanley Baldwin, who is the prime minister. Yeah. And she says, behold, little girl, Stanley Baldwin, who believes that safety comes first. And she, she says, the headmistress, Miss Mackay, and Stanley Baldwin think that safety comes first. But she says, safety does not come first. <laughs> Goodness, truth, and beauty come first. Mm. And um, I love Miss Jean Brodie, and she's, she's actually a terrible teacher, in fact. <laughs> but the, um, that, I think that's true. And in schools, we're really in danger of putting safety first. Because if we do that, you can end up with this really kind of anodyne, watered-down curriculum um, and I think that's true especially for boys they can they can get a really kind of feminized mm -hmm. version of the curriculum where they mustn't encounter violence or right. um, anything kind of too challenging but in fact you know if we want them to experience beauty beauty is really dangerous yeah. beauty is really powerful it's awesome mm -hmm. it inspires fear and reverence and so um and it's worth fighting for. Right. And we want them to experience the transformative power of that. So we don't want to be anxious ourselves. We also, as part of that anxiety, don't want to um, kind of over overly protect them from, from being transformed by the power of, of truth. Um, George Eliot, who wrote Middlemarch, says that um, the hardest missile that anyone can be pelted with is the truth. Which I think is a really, is a really true statement. That's a good sentence. Yeah, and I was also in, I was wondering as well whether you'd read any Flannery O'Connor short stories. Uh, it's when I was in college I did, but you I did. haven't uh, kept up with them. Yeah, so I mean that's a good example of perhaps Christians especially being very safe, mm. and and her books weren't sold in Christian bookshops mm. because they were considered to be too, too violent okay. and too dangerous. Yeah. Um, and she says about her stories, she says, uh, a lot of people get killed in my stories, but don't nobody get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> because she, she has this kind of, um, this motif, if you like, of dark grace, where some disillusioned, sanctimonious character gets smashed up violently, mm -hmm. and all of their delusions are shattered, and then they either accept the grace that's offered to them, or they... They don't. And, um, and so those texts, those short stories by Fanny O'Connor are great ones to teach your children when they're a bit older mm. because they see the brokenness of a human being and then this, this transformation and salvation. 
at the end of her stories. But um, those were books that weren't sold by Christian bookshops. <laughs> so let's not be anxious about that. Um, I, once, uh, I once heard a pastor describe his, uh, his sort of conversion to the Reformed tradition. Uh, and he just said like that, uh, that was a tough one because grace kind of kicks you in the teeth. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, the amazing thing is Fanny O'Connor is a Catholic, mm. but she, ha she has this knack for telling stories really, really powerfully. Um, yeah, I think the other danger we can have with, with anxiety, as I said, is to do with impatience and that we can, we can be anxious about teaching them something that we, be, that we think would be too difficult. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas I think it's much better to teach above their heads and kind of let them grow into Let that. them grow into it. Show yeah. them, show them the, the, that the world is bigger than they currently realize. Exactly. Yes. Broaden their horizons. And, and also, we need to model patience in the way that we teach difficult texts. So don't expect them at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning when you've scheduled your lesson on Dickens mm -hmm. that they are going to get it then. That it might take years. Right. And so um, we have to be patient and trust that, you know, you sow the seeds and they grow later. And so don't put pressure on them to understand it immediately because they might not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might, might take a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned uh, in, uh, in a Christian paideia in, in one of the goals of teaching is uh, the... Uh, the dif difference between gratitude and ingratitude. Um, could you say a little bit about that and maybe how, that, uh, how that's accomplished or how that relates to uh, literature in particular? Yeah, that's right. The passage tells us to, to give thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, and I think that one problem that I see in modern education across the board is that um, our approach to literature can be in itself really ungrateful. So mm. we take our literary heritage, which is a, an amazing gift, mm -hmm. and the first mm -hmm. thing we want to do is deconstruct it and analyze it. Um, and I think if we do that, we're not honoring the gift of our amazing literary heritage. And in fact, what we're trying to do is destroy it. We're trying to cut it up, analyze it, make it into bite-sized chunks that we can handle. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't think it's helpful for, for young children who are trying to enjoy the magnitude of, of some of these stories so that's the first thing that you know when an artist makes a piece of work who are we to come along with a scalpel and cut little bits out of it mm. um, so that that's one thing and, and in the same way you know certain texts are being cut out of the canon because right. they're considered inappropriate or yeah no that you know you, you couldn't read them in this cultural climate because we're far more sophisticated now yeah um, yeah, and it's funny, like, at least here, like, sort of classic works of, like, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, mm. um, are, they, they most immediately or most recently come to mind as being uh, shunted off the curriculum. Out of fashion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so we've got to be grateful for what we've been given. Mm -hmm. And then I think another um, danger uh, of ingratitude is is approaching texts from a non-Christian worldview because it can be so reductive. Mm. Um, and I mean, even to the point of reductio ad absurdum, where, you know, if you, for example, were to read Macbeth, the play yeah. Macbeth from a, a feminist 
perspective or a feminist worldview. You know, you'd be teaching children that Lady Macbeth should be held up as a role model. Right. That she's a kind of feminine hero. Yeah. Um, and that she's a real go-getter. Yeah. Right. Oh, she's not the main character of the play, even. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're teaching something there that's so reductive that we forget, perhaps even that she's the most powerful woman in Scotland, mm -hmm. and yet we're saying she's oppressed by patriarchy. Right. So, yeah. it, it's just. It's reductive, and I think that's ungrateful because you're not appreciating the whole thing that you've been given. Um, but a, a Christian approach to to a text can can only ever enrich the reading experience, I think, um, because these other worldviews are reductive. Right. The Christian perspective is enlarging yeah. because of the mm -hmm. the magnitude of the cosmological vision of a Christian, that we have a vertical and horizontal vision, which is lacking in, in some of these other worldviews. Um, so, yeah. The, the other thing, I think, is the, the ungrateful nature of, of the romantic approach to literature. And mm -hmm. you and I were probably taught like this in yeah. school, <laughs> where, you know, you asked first and foremost after reading a poem or a book how it made you feel. Yes. And the, the primacy of, of your emotional response mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is revered as, as true, because that's your experience. Which um, is kind of, kind of an unfair question to ask a young student. Like, I, I didn't know it was supposed to make me feel something. <laughs> and I'm here, like, I, I remember, uh, because yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely was taught in this way. And I'm, I'm just thinking, like, oh, what, what do most people say? <laughs> yeah, which is a really... Um, that's a really good response, actually, because the danger with a romantic view is that we, we, we're showing children that there isn't a right or a wrong response to things, mm -hmm. that any feeling is valid. Yeah. Where that's not true at all. You know, St. Augustine talks about the order amoris. That's right. And that we have to rightly order our affections. Yeah. And reading literature is a great way of, of doing that. Um, so while a romantic approach to a text would kind of take the text as a, a backdrop to your own consciousness. Mm. Um, a Christian one <laughs> couldn't possibly do that yeah. because it's, you know, it's about the death of self, really. Um, you know, we need to look outwards and upwards. So, I mean, Hamlet, the play Hamlet's been a victim of this kind of romantic mm. reading. Um, it wasn't a very popular play. And, and then Coleridge came along. Okay and uh, kind of revived it as this amazing psychological masterpiece. Hmm. And then Hazlitt, another romantic critic, comes along and says famously, it is we who are Hamlet. Huh. Um, which in a sense, yes, it is true. Is that, that's a, there's legitimacy to that? Well, Shakespeare says that um, one thing that, that he, the stage does is it holds a mirror up to nature. Right, right. But the romantics take this too far. Hmm. Um, and kind of say there are as many Hamlets as there are people who read him, which denies the fact that Hamlet as a fictional character has a kind of existence and integrity beyond the reader. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's, it, it's dangerous because it can make children really narcissistic because they go into a yep. text looking yep. into the mirror and all they're ever going to encounter will be themselves. Yep. Um, whereas 
we want to get them away from that because that creates anxiety, right? If yes. you just stood there looking in the mirror all day. Yeah, I was just, I was just going <laughs> to yeah. say, it all, it's, it's paralyzing as well. Yeah, like. yeah. So they need, they need a kind of humility. Um, and C.S. Lewis's experiment and criticism is really good mm -hmm. on this. He teaches that art is not a mirror. It's a window that you yep. look through and you see the world. Um, so, yeah, we, we should try to discourage children from from reading themselves into the text, I think. Um, and, and as I said, try to train them that there are correct emotional responses to things. And, and mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis writes about that in The Abolition of Man yeah. really well. That's worth reading. I mean, it's really twisted to teach children to admire Macbeth or Milton's Satan. Right. Because right. these characters yeah, they're spectacular and they're enchanting, but they're proud, ambitious, rebellious, tyrannical, mm -hmm. evil. Um, you could say both of them really are kind of prototypes of the Nietzschean Ubermensch. Right. And, and both of them get the justice they deserve in the texts. But um, we're so twisted now that, you know, we can make arguments that say, well, their, their language is so enchanting and it's the best part in the play. So obviously that's heroic. Um, and we have to be careful that we don't hold these characters up mm -hmm. as paragons of, um, you know, human power, the power of the will against fate. Right, right. Um, That's really interesting um, because I was just talking with somebody the other day about, uh, about film and TV and about um, a lot of the superhero uh, films that have been uh, all coming out uh, for a dec the past decade. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> One of, the, one of the points that they made was that uh, in, in almost every case, they've got, the, the filmmakers have gone out of their way to make you sympathize. Like, the villain is still the villain, yeah. but you sympathize with him. You get a backstory of him. You see, oh, what happened to him that made him this way? Or, mm, it's not his fault. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, okay, I, like he's, I understand his goal. Like, He's doing it the wrong way, but I like. Yeah. Or that. Whereas, like, when Mil he, Milton, like, he's like, okay, I'm gonna, you've made a good creation, and I am gonna wreck this up. Hmm. Like, exactly. And when, you know, when he gets crushed at the end and all the snakes have to crawl around eating ashes, yeah. you know, you might get a modern critic who says the ending's an anticlimactic right. and unsuccessful. Right. Um, which is yeah. kind of ignoring yeah. what the story is about. So, um, and I think this is where we can get into the danger as well uh, of, of kind of idolizing language, if you mm. like. Okay. So often it's I'm, true. I'm interested. Yeah, I think the, the evil characters in Shakespeare's plays often have some of the best speeches. Right. And right. It's, it's because they have to equivocate. Mm. They have to do a lot of talking to make things happen. They're plotting. Equivocating means they're telling half the truth, yeah. but also a lie. Mm -hmm. um, and so th they, they produce these kind of whirling words. Um, whereas the good characters, I'm always amazed by how much they get done in so few words. So if you look mm. at King Duncan and Malcolm, his son in Macbeth, they don't speak very much, but they accomplish a great deal. Same as the characters of Christ and God in, in Milton's Paradise right. Lost. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as C.S. Lewis will tell you about Paradise Lost, you're mis you've misunderstood it if you think that Satan is admirable. Right. 
that's not what it's meant to be. Um, yeah, and uh, I was just reminded of a passage from Isaiah where the, the Lord says that his words um, can't go away from him uh, without accomplishing something. That's right. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So I think, you know, remembering that and then looking at how futile these speeches are that the equivocating characters make mm. can, can be a much clearer approach, perhaps, to, to understanding the story. Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a good observation, good mm. point. Um, as, uh, as you read through Philippians and you, uh, you talk about... Um, what, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable and worthy of praise. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had, a, yeah. I had a note here, but I lost my place in it. Yeah, I think we were going to consider how, how do we do this with literature? That's right, yeah. That's, and, uh, and kind of where does the Bible fit in? That's, that's, uh, that's exactly it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I think, well, the thing that that list shows us is that we have to acknowledge that there is a, a hierarchy of things, of, of created things. Mm. And obviously because of sin and because of the fall, some things are, are really corrupted. And one of our duties as teachers and parents is to seek out the things that are excellent and lovely and good and um, accept that some books are better than others. Right. And, and be willing to, to kind of categorize them a bit. And you know, the great blessing is that we have the Western canon. Someone's already done it. They've spent yes. years <laughs> debating it. So yeah. you can yeah. go to the Western canon and um, you know, find the great books there. So you're not having to, to look for them. I don't know how things will be in 50 years time yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or 100. But at the top of that hierarchy is the Bible. Like that is the, the pinnacle of all books. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and I think, parents uh, should start with that. Yes, yeah, that's a great, uh, great dictum. I think you you had said earlier that uh, that there's there's a sense in which all literature is a response to the Bible. Uh, can you just uh, flesh that out a little? Yeah, I can try. I think it, the Bible is the the whole story of the whole world, from mm -hmm. creation, fall, redemption, to um, to kind of consummation yeah, restoration restoration yeah. so any stories that we write are within that narrative somewhere and the patterns the imagery um, the structures of the stories in the bible are so powerful and so good and so true that any decent writer is going to borrow them right yeah <laughs> and in fact yeah. you know just despite themselves are maybe using them even though they're not quite aware of what they're doing or they might be trying to negate them but either way they're dependent mm -hmm. on the bible in some way right because yeah. it, it it is the the book that is written by the author of every single one of us so it's it's a good one to to put at the top of your reading list <laughs> yes and yeah, of that regularly in circulation yeah with children i think it's it's such a great place to start, especially getting them to memorize scripture. Mm -hmm. I was taught to do that when I was little. Um, we used to memorize the Psalms, and I think that's why I love poetry so much yep. now. Yep. 
But you know what, what? What I often see in young people, and I've taught all over the world, is that they just they don't know the biblical images anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can't we can't let them lose that. We've we've got to recover that and teach them that. So a great book that really helped me with this was um, Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, yeah. goes through all the typology of the Bible. He says he's a hermeneutic maximalist. And um, it's, it is a book that opens your eyes. So um, I teach young people and uh, when, when, you know, when a garden comes up in literature, you kind of expect them to know about the Garden of Eden and, and the fall into sin and then how all the weeds sprouted up and how we have to toil it. Mm-hmm. toil and, and in the sweat of our brow we have to um, you know try and subdue it but that they, they're just not clear on that anymore they haven't been taught it so um, teach teach them from the beginning I think we need to teach them the the imagery of the garden and how important it is throughout the bible um, and also throughout literature Hamlet is always, we always, everyone remembers Hamlet says Denmark is a prison, yeah. but he, he also says Denmark is an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things mm. rank and gross in nature, possess it merely. And by the time your, your child is 18, 19, 20 and going to university, you want them to be able to read Shakespeare without looking up the footnotes yes. to any of the biblical references. Yeah. And, you know, if they can do that, they'll have a huge advantage over there, peers. Yeah, and it's only in the past 20 years that those Shakespeare editions have needed those biblical references. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I think teaching them about the, the imagery of trees is really important. Mm. The, the trees in Genesis, yeah. um, the imagery of trees in Isaiah, with the ax being laid at the root, yeah. um, the cross, the lampstands in Revelation. Yeah. You know, these patterns are so powerful. They, they need to understand and, and writers always use imagery of trees in mm-hmm. novels and poetry um, and also imagery of marriage I think is important um, there's a great there's a great joke in Chaucer um, the merchant's tale we have a, ve- a very old lascivious man trying to take a young wife mm. and he's misquoting scripture to try and justify what I he's see. doing oh, yeah. and he says um, Love well thy wife as Christ loved his church. If thou lovest thou, if thou lovest thyself, thou lovest thy wife. Now that's really funny because anyone who's read Ephesians five knows yeah. it's the other way round. Yeah. It's not if you love yourself you love your wife. It's if you love your wife, you love yourself. That's right. But if we have um, young people who are kind of biblically blunt, yeah. they won't even enjoy the jokes. Right. In Chaucer. Yeah. So let's not deprive them of some really good laughs. They, they need to learn it. Um, yeah, I, 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 can't, I just can't get over how biblically illiterate we're becoming or in danger of becoming. Um, there's a great poem by um, Christina Rossetti called Amor Mundi, mm-hmm. which means the love of the world. And the first line is um, there's a man and he, he sees this beautiful woman and her hair's all blowing in the wind. And he says, where are you going with your love locks flowing on the west wind blowing? And any student who knows the first psalm would know that he should be weary, wary of this woman because she's blowing on the wind. Mm. She's like the chaff. Yeah. And, you know, kind of a few lines later, 
she's led him into hell. Mm. And at the end of the poem, that's where he ends up. But if you know Psalm 1, you already know <laughs> that's where he's going at the end of the poem. So um, I think, yeah, we've got to make sure that they are alert to the richness of the overarching patterns, but also the little fascinating details. Yes. Hamlet talks yeah. about Jephthah's daughter mm. uh, in reference to Polonius. He says there's special providence in the fall of a sparrow. There are lots of children who might not, nowadays, might not even know that that's a reference to the Bible. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just, uh, for someone like Shea, it was just second nature. He could expect his audience to be familiar with it, yeah. and it was so familiar to him that it just kind of rolled out there. Yeah, and in another sense as well, you know, if, if you're interested in the diction and the structure of the English language, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. it's really fascinating to study how Chaucer uses the Wycliffe translation of the Bible. Shakespeare always uses the Geneva translation. And then the King James Bible, which was published a bit later yeah. in the Renaissance, it kind of undergirds a lot of the, the, the structure and the content of um, the language of English literature, of great English literature. So it's still on the reading list for Oxford University that you know before you go to study English, you must read the King James Bible. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's a mercy in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've touched on this uh, sort of here and there, but uh, the, uh, the word that, uh, that you used when we were talking about this earlier is, uh, is mimesis, mm. um, to, to sort of get the idea that this is, you know, it's fun, it's enjoyable, by knowing more of the context and their source material in the Bible, we get we get more of the references, we, can, we have a fuller enjoyment of it, but um, is there a, when we take this outside of the classroom or out of uh, the, re the reading chair, is there, is there more to it? Uh, or I guess, what, uh, what does mimesis have to do, or what, explain mimesis and what that has to do with, uh, with getting more out of literature than, uh, than just that, uh, that enjoyment. Yeah, sure. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I think if we remind ourselves of the end of the passage that we read at the beginning, that um, Paul is instructing the Philippians to, to be like Christ by, um, by hearing, um, and, and not only what they've heard, but also what they've seen, and that these, these are things that they, they then have to do. Mm -hmm. So um, Paul calls us mimetikoi, which means imitators, be therefore imitators of God as dear children. Um, and I think the Bible shows us that we learn by analogy, we learn by imitation, right. um, which is why it's, it's such a huge responsibility to be a parent or a teacher, because you are you are modeling that, life for that young mm -hmm, person. Absolutely. And, and you have to point to Christ all the time. Yeah, you have to be Christ-like uh, so that they see Christ in you and, and so that they will um, hopefully turn to Christ and, and want to be like him. And that's a huge responsibility. So, so mimesis is about um, acknowledging that that's how children learn okay. and working mimesis, with it. not mimesis. Very inelegant on my part. No, <laughs> I, I'm not brilliant on Greek translation myself. I, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it either. 
But um, the great thing about teaching literature is that unlike in maths, you have loads of examples to draw on. You're always showing them heroes and um, great uh, types, if you like, ideal types. And so I think if they know about Abraham, Josiah, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Samson, Solomon, all these great um, men of the Bible, and obviously the women too, um, and see that they're flawed and not perfect, um, that they can start to learn not just a kind of head knowledge about a virtue, um, but that when they have, when they have that knowledge, they, they can then practice it. Um, and that begins, I think, by teaching them how to compare characters mm-hmm. um, and then how to demonstrate that behavior themselves and how to compare themselves to the highest standard, which is the life that Christ led. Um, but it's so fascinating to do as an academic exercise as well. I mean, compare Antonio in The Merchant of Venice to Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that would be a whole kind of week of lessons if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah. Um, compare Saul to Macbeth would be a really interesting thing to do. Both mm-hmm. of them with this fascination for witchcraft. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of unrighteous kings. Yeah, holding, grasping at the kingship. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that, um, as you said, it's, it's not just about storing up ideas, it's about practicing the virtue that we teach them. Um, Socrates and Paul said that, you know, if you, if you know and, and love the, the virtue of strength, you should be able to demonstrate it. So if men are going to love sacrificially and protect women, then they, they have to be able to do that mentally and physically. That's right. And so um, I, I think it's very important that schools have good physical sporting activities for children to do as well. Perfect. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that, as we were saying at the beginning, the, the big mistake with a book can be that we, we think somehow we're going to change the book by bringing some new meaning to it. Mm. But in fact, with mimesis, uh, the idea of mimesis, what we're doing is um, being transformed by the text and the examples that are shown in it. And C.S. Lewis is a really strong um, advocate of this. He says, we don't sit down with literature so that we can do something to it. We sit down with literature so that it can do something to us. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And it transforms us. And, and so, and that's kind of a, a bit of a, an understatement, really, that, you know, there's a practical application. It's, it's much fuller than that. So the idea that we escape into literature, into a fictional world, I think is, is really counterintuitive mm. and that we shouldn't be teaching literature as an escape. Okay. It's not an escape. Um, T.S. Eliot said that human beings can't bear too much reality and that we're distracted <laughs> from distraction by distraction. Yeah. But literature is not, it's not a distraction. It's not an abstraction. It's, it's full of embodied truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, it's a kind of a form of godlike creation where we, the author is imitating God. Yes. And an author uses words to create a fictional world. And, and God spoke the real world into being at the beginning created the entire universe so in that sense it's, it's really interesting and we shouldn't think about it as as this kind of amusement or escape mm-hmm. um flannery o'connor is, is amazing she says 
I'm always irritated by people who imply that writing fiction is an escape from reality. It is a plunge into reality and it's very shocking to the system, is yeah. what she says. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you think that fiction can do that... And nobody who's ever done any writing would fall, falls into that, uh, that temptation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if fiction has the power to do that, then the, the power the Bible has to transform us is just immense. And so I think the other thing about teaching is that um, I'm not trying to teach them to, to know what I know or to know as much as what I know. I'm trying to, to get them to surpass that. Mm -hmm. um, it says in the Psalms that um, I have more understanding than all my teachers because your testimonies are my meditation. Yeah. So if we ground them in the truth of the Bible and teach it to them so that they know it, they, hopefully they will surpass us. <laughs> That's the aim of education, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. SJ, thanks uh, so much for, for being here, for sharing from your own experiences. Um, before I let you go, I uh, just want to ask you about uh, some recommended reading, some of, the, uh, some of the books and resources that have shaped your own, uh, your own outlook and approach uh, as a teacher and as a scholar of, uh, of literature. I have to say that question is like an English teacher's dream. Okay, good. You just get I to was, give a uh, list of all your favourite books. Yeah, no, I was holding it on until the end. <laughs> um, this is a list that I, I think is appropriate for teenagers, mature teenagers and adults. Um, and I've, I've made reference to some of these texts today in our conversation. Um, so in no particular order, Beowulf, the Seamus Heaney translation. Okay. The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. All of Shakespeare's plays, and after that, maybe his sonnets as well. Okay. Paradise Lost, Fanny O'Connor short stories, as we said. Um, I think Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner okay. is, is an amazing book worth studying. Hard Times by Charles Dickens is incredible, um, especially for teachers with a class of children because it's mm. about education. Okay. And it's about the effects, the damaging effects of utilitarianism on children. Um, and the, the amazing thing about that story is that the imagination can be suppressed, but it can't be killed. And later in the story, there's this resurgence of imagination and love. Hmm. So Hard Times is, is a brilliant novel. Um, my favourite work on World War I is a poem, a prose poem by a writer called David Williams. Okay. Um, David Jones, sorry, by David Jones. So that's called In Parenthesis. That's really worth reading. It's, he says it's about kind of the gaps, the things that happen between the action in the war, because obviously there was a lot of waiting around in the trenches. It wasn't all just glory and action. Yeah. Um, that's an amazing poem. Um, I recently read Anthony Esselin's translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. Okay, yeah. That's brilliant. Everybody should read that. Um, the Sydney Psalter is a book that I only recently discovered. It is probably the most incredible collection of English poetry. Is that right? So Sir Philip Sidney and his sister uh, rewrote all of the Psalms using a different poetic form for each Psalm. So it's just the Psalms recast in, in English poetic wow. verse forms. Very beautiful text. Oh, that, sounds, that sounds spectacular. Yeah. I'm going to go get that. Um, Gulliver's Travels mm -hmm. is, a, is a brilliant um, satire on how, on the ignorance of modern man. <laughs> That's a really good 
uh, a good story to read. Really funny. Um, Orinoco by Afra Ben um, is, a, is an interesting perspective from the 17th century on the slave trade. Mm. Uh, the main character is um, is a, a prince from Suriname who is himself a slave trader and then gets sold into slavery. Hmm. Um, and then I also mentioned the Prime Minister Jean Brodie or anything yes. by Muriel Spark. I love yeah. Muriel Spark. Yeah. <laughs> and then I also thought about some secondary texts, perhaps more yeah, for yeah. teachers or parents to read. Terrific. Um, there's Through, Through New Eyes by James Jordan, the one I mentioned about imagery in the Bible. Mystery and Manners by Fanny O'Connor. Uh, which is a writer's perspective on how we should read. Really, really authoritative, brilliant book. The Mind of the Maker by Dorothy yeah. Sayers talks about the creative process of writing a book. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Experiment in Criticism and the Abolition of Man, really helpful for teachers. Norms and Nobility by David Hicks is yeah. about why classical education is worth recovering yeah. and, and why modern education is, is inadequate. Um, and then a book that I found really helpful in teaching Shakespeare is um, Peter Lightheart's The Brightest Heaven of Invention. He has six Shakespeare plays in there hmm. um, and it's really, it really is written for teachers. So that's a good one too. Brilliant. Thanks very much, SJ. Thanks for being here again. Yeah, I've really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.